Welcome to Hablamos, Conversations on Teaching, Learning and Biomultilingualism, the podcast of the ICME EE project at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. As is mentioned in the name, the main goal of this podcast is to embrace multilingualism. So we are going to have conversation around this topic in the classroom and how teachers can support by a multilingual development. I'm Araceli Lobato and I will be your host. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hi, welcome to everybody to a new uh, episode of our podcast. Today we have Dr. Dr. Barbara Dre. Is that the way that you pronounce your name? That's right. Okay. <laughs> I always afraid of saying wrongly the names um, because obviously names are important. <laughs> Thank um, you. We are very glad of having you today with us. So um, I always tell my my guest, my guest, Tia Dien, guess it, like, how do you say the plural? Guest? Guests. Guests. That's I always tell them that if they can introduce themselves, um, because that way our listener can can know more about them. Um, so do you mind to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Dr. Barbara Dre, and um, I was a former speech therapist. Uh, that's how I got started in this whole career trajectory. And my area in particular is bilingual special ed. And uh, when I started as a bilingual speech therapist, Um, I worked for a few years and uh, bilingual settings. So one school I worked was mainly uh, Puerto Rican children. And um, the goal there was to teach in the native language um, in a preschool setting so that they could all um, catch up with their language skills um, and be able to improve um, enough so that their proficiency levels would put them at an advantage when they went to public school. So That was in a preschool setting. All the kids were two standard deviations below um, the norm on uh, language testing in Spanish. And then um, that school was pretty amazing because it just taught me so much about um, really using the funds of knowledge of the community and the linguistic repertoire of the community. We actually really collaborated closely with um, family members and all the staff got priority in terms of hiring people from Puerto Rico um, in the Puerto Rican community. And so we used a lot of their language games and plays and all that um, in our teaching. And um, the, the, actually the whole program was founded on Paulo Freire's notion of emancipatory learning, like learning literacy for emancipation. So anyway, um, I was so excited by that experience. I wanted to really get to know bilingual education because I hadn't heard anything about it up until that point. Now I was, I got my undergrad degree in the early 90s. So um, anyway, from there I went out to Northern New Mexico and I worked for Española Valley Public Schools. And um, there I worked with many language groups, including local indigenous communities, 
as well as lots of different dialects of Spanish from um, Mexico, as well as um, the local Spanish in northern New Mexico, which is um, a descendant of Castilian Spanish. Mm-hmm. So um, I learned a lot, but one of the things that really struck me was that I had an overrepresentation of kids, multilingual learners in special education, like so much so that um, like we literally had a separate track for special education for every single subject in the middle school. So there was a track for social studies, special education for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, a track for science, um, special ed for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, a track for English language arts. And these were all different teachers that taught those subjects just for the special ed students. And I was like, this can't be right. Um, This isn't, you know, a lot of my students were put in for pragmatics and really the issues were around social uses of language. And it was like, that's not a disability, that's a cultural difference. Um, And actually a lot of my students were in second language, second culture um, acquisition process and they weren't quote unquote disabled. So it really frustrated me. And um, I witnessed firsthand what Angela Valenzuela calls subtractive schooling. And that drove me back to grad school. And initially, I was going to um, go for linguistics and study the languages of the student that the students brought into school because they were deemed as like Spanglish or broken English and so forth. And I'm like, no, this is not this. That's not what this is. There's something more going on. And then I learned my first semester in my linguistics program at UNM in Albuquerque that um, somebody had already done that awesome work. And um, actually, it's the oldest form of preserved Castilian Spanish spoken in the world. It's not even spoken in Spain anymore. So, um, but in my linguistics program, I got really frustrated because everything was so technical and divorced from reality. (laughs) I wanted to impact real teachers and real students. So I then switched programs to the bilingual special ed program. And what I learned was that I, I naively went into it thinking that I, I want to know that what it, what really it takes to qualify for special ed and what is the difference between language, culture, and disability? Wow. <laughs> well, I didn't know that that was like a whole field of study <laughs> and that it was like opened up a whole can of worms. Like nobody had really figured it out. And in fact, it was like, you know, just really um, in its heyday, you know, Dr. Leonard Baca and Albertiz and Shernaz Garcia are kind of some of the prime architects, Nancy Cloud of that field, um, all of whom are retired now. Um, But that's a conversation for another day. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so that catapulted me into getting my doctorate in bilingual and um, multicultural special ed with Elba uh, Ortiz and Shernaz Garcia. And in that program, I actually ended up working closely with Dr. Garcia around schools that were cited by the Office of Civil Rights for not meeting the needs of limited English proficient students at the time. That was the buzz term. And um, what I found was that in the literature in particular around culturally and linguistically responsive education was a lot of, um, you know, it, it may not be possible to shift white teachers' perspectives to help them adopt uh, culturally and linguistically responsive practices. And me being a white teacher who had these sensibilities of uh, social justice orientation, 
I just was like perplexed that that was the pervasive perspective that white teachers really can't teach what they don't know. And um, that started my journey. So my dissertation um, was utilizing uh, adult learning theory called transformative learning, which uh, was founded by Jack Mesereau. He studied his wife going back to school from quote unquote homemaker to professional um, back in the 70s and looked at the process of transformation and, and what does that look like in adults. And that really gave me so much hope in terms of, yes, yeah, see, there's a theory here that shows us that there are certain things that need to happen in order to help shift people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so um, my dissertation was around um, looking at white women who had a critical consciousness um, or a social justice orientation and what was it about their life histories that enabled them to adopt this perspective and additionally what was it about the pedagogy of the course where they had this transformative shift that enabled them to do that and that's been my work ever since is really advancing this notion of mindfulness um, pedagogy and so how do we meet teachers where they're at help them understand and recognize their own socialization help them understand identity development, where they are in their own identity development in terms of race, culture, language, class, and so forth. You know, basically a critical consciousness um, sensibility. And more importantly, what are those practices that teachers can adopt when they themselves are not from the same culture or linguistic background as the students that they serve? So, you know, like Sonia Nieto and um, Isri, um, they purport that, you know, it is possible for teachers to have, um, to be culturally connected even when they don't share the same background as their students. And so that's really my work is like, you know, about hope and possibility and my, the main theme these days of how I frame it is all teachers are language teachers. And that really dates back to my early experience um, as a speech therapist. And the other thing that's really critical um, in my um, experience is that I have a brother who's deaf. Mm -hmm. um, and from a very early age, he taught me what it meant to be culturally and linguistically deaf. And he is you know, somebody, a, a big advocate in the field. He prepares sign language interpreters at the University of Louisville. He went to Gallaudet, which is the only deaf university in the world. You have to be able to speak ASL in order, be proficient in ASL in order to attend that university. So he taught me a lot about how to view people in the world. And um, that's where I started my career, was working with kids with significant disabilities who were nonverbal. And I never saw them as quote unquote disabled. Um, I always saw them as human first and that they had these challenges, but my job was to help them acquire functional communication to be able to really be included in society. And so that's really like my, you know, epistemology, you know, I, I don't, I don't buy into the deficit understandings. I don't really buy into the medical model of that's predominantly promoted in special education. I really um, am pro-inclusion. I was a full inclusion teacher, both as a speech therapist and as a, a bilingual special education teacher. I had the most severe kids in the school, and I was the only one doing full inclusion. And yeah. that's because of how I was raised. You know, I mean, I was raised in the disability community with my mm -hmm. brother and his friends. And so, I mean, that really changes a person. Um, 
And so I think that, you know, one of the, I guess one of the things that I want to wanted to say is um, just, you know, in terms of anybody listening to this podcast, my brother really said something profound once when I interviewed him for a project. He said, you know, I'm deaf. I'm always going to be deaf. And I have worked my entire life for you hearing people to better understand me. But what have you done to better understand me, my language, my culture? And that just like, I was like, yeah, exactly. So that's really what I feel like my mission um, in the in the impetus of the work that I do with teachers is really to help them flip that script and get into the sensibility of all teachers are language teachers. We're there to crack the code and figure out the code and help students crack the code so that we can all coexist and, and be together and learn together and innovate together and all those good things wow i think like my mind just blow blows up that's the expression i think i can see even smoke <laughs> out of my brain right now because your experience is like wow um unfortunately i don't have so many experiences related to disabilities and students that uh, or imagine bilinguals are that has a disability um because um, in my, when I was doing my master to be an English teacher in Spain, we don't have, like, I didn't have any course related to special education. So those, those things that you are talking about for me are so new and so interesting because I'm totally in blank. Um, so it sounds so interesting and your dissertation was like, wow. <laughs> so that's the reason why I said that my brain is like working so hard right now. Um, because I, I see your points like very, very interesting and I, I want to know more now. And well, I'll be happy to share with you. I have a really good publication that a lot of teachers enjoy on the social construction of ability mm -hmm. that kind of mm -hmm. helps lay out the field and, um, kind of where the ideology of everything, mm -hmm. you know, of all of that and where we should be, really. Mm -hmm. You can send it to me and I can add it on the podcast notes so everybody can see it. And sure. I'm not only the privileged one, so yeah, <laughs> give you a kind sure. too. So I'm very interested about when you, uh, when you say that all teachers are language teacher. what kind of advice can you give us, at, like people like me, that we are new teachers and we are not used to yet to work with um, with a student a student with uh, disabilities or like your brother says what can what kind of things what kind of things we can do uh, to better understand them like because sometimes um, for instance me as an international student I have to to do kind of the same thing that your brother says so people can understand me better. Um, but if you add in that, I don't want to call it handicap because it's not, it's like that, but how can I express it? Like how, what can uh, people, what, what kind of things people can do to better understand them? Like what kind of um, advices and tips can you give us to, um, to help us grow up as a teachers and, and take into consideration this, this type of students? Yeah, that's an excellent question and something that I have been working on for a long time. And mm -hmm. I think that the first thing is 
being able to humanize the other person and not see somebody as the stranger, but there is this notion called interbeing that we inter are, you know, and that um, I am not separate from you, but you are me and I am you, right? And this whole notion of um, how do I personally get to know my student? And so one of the projects that I do oftentimes in my courses is I have a student I have my students and even practicing teachers, they will, I have them shadow a multilingual learner who's either identified as a struggling learner or somebody who has already a disability. And the things that they're having to do is A, literally shadow, observe this student in mm -hmm. multiple contexts. So mm -hmm. see what a day in a life is like for that person, right? The second thing is to actually sit down and talk with the student and interview them and like learn more about them authentically. Like what are your likes and dislikes? Like what are you um, most challenged by in school and what do you love about school? Who are your favorite teachers? Why, what do you do when you're not in school? You know, just like really learn who that person is, right? So you're humanizing that person. The third thing is, um, you know, in terms of as an educator, especially when you first get out into the schools, like it's important to look at that child's, um, you know, academic record and look at the test scores and look at, you know, some of those markers, but it's equally important to talk to other teachers and what they think of the student and what are, what have been their experiences. But the other thing that's critically important because oftentimes stu like, um, you know, those formalized assessments can be culturally and linguistically biased. So they're not always a hundred percent accurate. And sometimes teachers have lenses that they bring into the classroom that they may or may not favor certain students. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's really important then um, those observations and the interview, but also have that student bring in work samples of like, what are things that they're prided by or just things that they struggle with and, and kind of, start to learn like how are they learning and what are their thoughts and how do they think so the idea is like you know really the only way that we're going to be able to create a truly inclusive diverse society that is inclusive and you know a, mm -hmm. a society is welcoming of diversity is by dismantling the foreignness of the other or the unfamiliarity or the strangeness as some people call it of the other and really get into authentic relationship with each other you know mm -hmm. like really know me as a person because yes i'm white yes i'm female yes i'm originally from buffalo new york but you know what i'm also uh, a yoga teacher i'm also <laughs> you know a health and wellness coach i'm also you know what i mean there's yeah. so many other things that make me me beyond just those outward markers that we often mm -hmm. look at and then we categorize or discriminate um, against mm -hmm. people so it's important to really you know get to the humanness of each other yeah yeah I like that one of the things I remember that I learned in, in the course that I took last semester for instance um, in instead of saying um, my autistic son it's better to say my son who has autism right so right. person first language yeah yeah I, I couldn't remember the name of that but so for instance that is a, a little thing that but we can do it and in a way to humanize um person because it's like i'm a person i'm not a disability like i'm first i'm a person then i have this because i have it but okay 
So yeah, like yeah, I mean, I can remember like I just as a quick example, I had a student. Um, he, his name was Ricardo, and he mm -hmm. was from the Isleta Pueblo uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And he came into my classroom and many of the teachers were like, oh, he's so difficult. And the speech therapist was like, he drools, he doesn't have functional communication. It was like mm -hmm. deficit, deficit, deficit. So I talked to the mom and I did a home visit. And what I found out was that because he had albinism and he, he also, um, he had this rare disorder where like his cerebellum um, was stunted. So he didn't have a lot of gross motor control and mm -hmm. so he was going to continue to decline so he would never be able to acquire the ability to use speech so we were going to have to find another way for him to communicate well he he drooled because he had dysphagia and that is a disorder where you, you know you have numbness in your throat so he wasn't of course ever going to be able to not drool that was just part of who he was right Mm -hmm. But um, I remember sitting down with mom and saying, so what is your goal for like, what, if you could have one thing for your son, what would it be? And she was like, I just want him to be able to go to Burger King and order food without my help. Mm. That's like huge, wow. right? Yeah. Well, the other thing that I learned about him was that because of his albinism, he was actually considered um, like the equivalent of like a uh, royalty in his community. And so they would, actually dress him in a special headdress he was like considered sacred and he would march at the front of every profession uh, of every procession for ceremonies in um, his community so whenever they would have ceremonies he was always at the front and greeting people and everything and so it made so much sense why when he came to school he was so confident and he was yeah. so social he would walk up to people and I was like oh I totally get it <laughs> and then he didn't have this functional communication, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was like, okay, so then, you know, I had recommended that we work on getting him a communication device where you can record children's voice inside mm -hmm. the device and it can have different layers so that he can use them in different settings. And there was a local boy um, from the same community that I was going to use his voice. I also found out that he was in Tiwak classes, which is his native language. Mm -hmm. um, and so he understood Tiwa, so we could do a layer on his communication device in his native language. And I remember the speech therapist like fighting me, like he can't even um, use sign language. And I'm like, he doesn't have the motor control to use sign language. He doesn't have, he's never going to be able to use a picture exchange system. Like, you know, you have to understand who the person is, their capabilities and their areas of challenge. And you have to work directly with the parents to understand the community that that child lives in to really get the full picture. Like how does this child interact in their community? I mean, imagine this deficit orientation that I was given. And then I go into the home and I talk to the parents and I learn so much about like what a contribution he makes to the community. And it's just like, wow, you know, what are we missing so often when we just judge the book by the cover mm -hmm. and we don't really get to know the families and the children in the communities that we serve. We have to get out there. And that's the other thing that I would say is that in all of my work, you know, that is something I pride myself in is being active in my local communities, mm -hmm. being active. Like when I work with teachers out in schools, when I do my research projects, which I have multiple 
projects, I make it a point to go out and see them in action and mm -hmm. what's going on and learn more about their true needs and desires before I step in with any kind of idea. You know, I'm not one who's like top down, I'm bottom up. Um, mm -hmm. I consider myself a thought partner more than, you know, somebody who's just coming in with, you know, this research idea that I want to advance. Yeah, but as, as you said before, like the most important thing is to sit down with the student to get to know him or her and be involved with his or her community, well, her family or his family and get to know the student. I, I feel that that could fit for everything that can happen to a student. It doesn't matter if it, it has a disability, well, if he or she has a disability or uh, they are emerging by the walls, whatever, like you, Teachers, we just need to know our students, even though if we have so many students or and we don't have <laughs> even time to have lunch. But I think that that can like solve many things that we we don't know, like it can solve many problems or struggles that um, even teachers are not um, aware of that. Like, as you said, with your experience, like when you shared it, like this uh, student was considered like, he was very difficult, it's so difficult to work with him. And you know, he has so, he was an important part of his community, but actually his real um, problem couldn't um, allow him to get, to get um, the um, language function, so. Yeah, and I think one of the most rewarding parts of that whole experience is that all the students that I taught that year, we were in full inclusion, and by the end of the year, well, actually, it was midway. <clears throat> the general ed kids were considered them their friends. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I want to go play with Ricardo, or I want to go play with Jesus, or I want to go play with Gabriel. You know, it, was like, <laughs> it wasn't like we had to force that integration. Uh -huh, nice. Because they were so included and embedded in the, in the system that mm -hmm. it was like, these are my friends you know, and that's the way it should be. If we're growing up side by side and we're with each other side by side and not in segregated programs, then we truly can develop, you know, a deep understanding of each other, a deep appreciation of each other. And those, and those relationships, relationship is everything. You know, um, actually, because I can compare my culture with this culture. I, I remember like last year I was walking and I, then I see many uh people like there were like a group of people taking the bus and they were like they were blind or they couldn't see perfectly well because they were with them um, with stick how do you call mm -hmm. it so i was surprised that they were taking the bus and next day i saw again uh like a father with a son and they were taking the bus and they were also they they may have some uh, eyes disability and I was thinking like there are there many blind people or people who have some disabilities in in their eyes in Lincoln or it's because Lincoln has like um, has the possibility to include them and they are doing things to include them because when I come back home I don't see many people like like these people in the streets or for instance when I was here like visiting schools, I saw like all of the schools has elevators and they have like many things for wheelchairs and those things. So I was thinking like, you know, sometimes um, 
I would like that my country has like more thought about these kind of people because for me it was shock like wow like I don't know then and, and I start to look for numbers and it was like no it's like regular like the regular number that another country another city can have but here like I feel that you are more inclusive or you are doing more things to have them inclusive here right. and that has to do with the American American dis, uh Americans with Disabilities Act. That's mm -hmm. the ADA Act that just came up that our government wanted to start to chip away at. Mm -hmm. And so because of ADA, it's universal right. It's a civil right to yeah, have exactly. the universal design with cut corners, with, you know, um, you know, crosswalks that have the beeping, with exactly. you know, going to a theater that has an AF... FM system so deaf people or you know people who are hard of hearing can use that accommodation to hear so yeah I mean that's what's so critical you know in this country one of the big differences at least that's what I've always felt I don't know you know with our current legislation but education is the civil right in this country exactly. that's a huge that's the biggest difference and that is what I fought for and that is what I love about my country mm -hmm is that we do have education as a civil right we do have accommodations as a civil right we do have anti-discrimination laws as a civil right we do have affirmative action as a civil right you know these things are critical and they've been put into place on purpose to not ostracize and um, leave out a segment of the population and that is what you know is really challenging in this era right now that we're in yeah. You know, um, we will we will be able to hold our ground, and things won't be denigrated too much, um, okay. so that we can keep moving forward um, with with the civil rights, with the human rights. Um, yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for this conversation. I really, I really, um, I always said the same like to all people, but like you all are so interesting and i always learn so much from this conversation and i hope that our listener help um they learn too so thank you so much do you like to share something else with us before we close <laughs> you know i just realized that i didn't actually um mention anything about what i do on the icme <laughs> i was so thinking about that I am a senior evaluator and I also support Dr. Viesca and the research component of this project in really making sure that it does authentically have an impact on mm -hmm. teachers and real kids and real students and real schools. But um, I also have um, worked on some revising some of the modules in terms of mm -hmm. restorative justice and the whiteness um, module and adding the multilingual learner lens. So. That's my expertise. Um, I do love um, helping all teachers become language teachers, and I do really sincerely consider myself a thought partner. And um, yeah, I've just enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And ICME, it's so glad to have you. Like, we are very lucky to have you. So thank you so much again. And, and hopefully, we are going to have many listeners and they can become language. Uh, teacher too so like you said like all the teachers we are all language teachers I'm already a language teacher so, <laughs> so <that's, laughs> but hopefully as you said hopefully um, again 
and all the teacher becomes language teacher at some point. So thank you so much again. And, and you're welcome. Um, I always said, do you know any language apart from English? So sí, I always claro. Gracias at the end. And I also sign uh, my, of course, because my brother uh, mm -hmm. is deaf. So I do uh, American Sign Language. And I know a little bit of languages from other groups, just from travel, um, you know, German and um, French and, and um, some other languages because I've worked with different refugee groups. Mm -hmm. But um, the one thing I did want to also leave people with, because we didn't have a chance to dive into some of my other latest work, but I have been helping monolingual English teachers really navigate the waters and how they authentically use children's full linguistic repertoire in the classroom. And that means um, this, the new concept that we've been using is called translanguaging, which is access to native language as well as all the dialects and um, all the different ways, whether that student only speaks the language or whether they have full literacy skills in their native language, but how do we authentically use the native language in the classroom as a, a gateway or a bridge to learning English um, and maintaining their um, multilingualism. Yeah, so. talking about translanguaging, it will be like another conversation for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say goodbye in any of the language that you know? <laughs> oh, adios, au revoir. Buenos dias. <laughs> Hasta luego. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for this interview, Dr. Barbara Trey. Uh, don't forget to send me that um, reading so I can upload it into our website. Um, and we have it in the podcast notes. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Arriba, <laughs> Ciao.